Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. It goes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. So if you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Turn back to the left. Head, head west. 1 uh, John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10 is where we're going to be this morning. It's that time of year where we start... Maybe some of us in here start making New Year's resolutions. Maybe. Some of you get to the turn of the calendar and it feels like, for whatever reason, it feels like a different time than a couple days ago when we were on December 31st. In all likelihood, 2022 is going to be very similar to 2021. But for some reason, when we turn that page on the calendar, we feel like it's different, and we start to think about the things that we want to change, the regrets maybe that we had for the last year, and things that we want to do differently this year, maybe, maybe habits we want to pick up, maybe habits we want to put down. I want to watch less TV. I want to eat less sweets. Believe it or not, my own children said that to us, me and Andrea, this week. They said, you know what we want to do this year? We want to eat less sugar. You could have knocked me over with a feather. So maybe that's it. You want to put away the sweets and maybe watch less TV or maybe you want to pick up new habits. I want to read the Bible more. I want to, I want to invest more in spiritual. Maybe I want to join the gym. I tell you what, this month is going to be the career month for every gym around town. They're going to have record membership in January as people go back to the gym and begin working out. And What happens though is about midway through January we realize a lot of those resolutions are easier said than done. We can say that we want to do these things, we want to take part in these, but then when the rubber meets the road, you realize just what is involved. And, and there's a critical, it reaches kind of critical mass, doesn't it? You, you get to a point, if you go far enough, it becomes such an entrenched habit of, say, working out or eating healthy, that you can't imagine your life without it. Maybe you do get that six-pack, you know? But then you also have to realize that you're one carton of bluebell away from one ab, right? <laughs> Just one ab right across a unified front, they present, right? Just one carton of bluebell away from it. You realize how difficult it is to keep that momentum going. New Year's resolutions are often easier said than done. I never like to leave just the Christmas story as it is. I, I, because, you know, you know why? The rest of the New Testament doesn't. The, the rest of the New Testament begins with the Incarnation, and then everything else in the rest of the New Testament is built on Jesus' Incarnation. Then ultimately His death, burial, and resurrection, which comes as a result of His Incarnation. So, so the New Testament doesn't leave the Incarnation. The church body doesn't leave the Incarnation. So I don't want to spend our time leading up to Christmas talking about Jesus coming and the story of the Magi and the shepherds and the angels and all of those kinds of things and then just leave it there. So this week is the, the last week in, in this sermon series on Christmas. <laughs> and you may think, well, Christmas was a couple weeks ago. It, it was indeed. But now we need to really think and shift our minds on what the Incarnation actually means for us. How do we live in light of the Incarnation of Jesus? Last week we looked at the text, for all three of us that were here, last week we looked at the text in Hebrew, 
in, in the book of Hebrews uh, about Jesus coming and the impact of the incarnation, what the incarnation actually did, what Jesus accomplished. And now we want to shift to what our life, how our life should be impacted, how our life should be changed, what potentially resolutions we should make going into the new year based on the incarnation of Christ. So with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to read your word, to hear it, as convicting as sometimes it is just in the reading of it. I pray for understanding. Help us to, to, to understand what your word says and, and, and obey what's, what's written here, whether it's really difficult for us, whether it involves us swallowing and eating a bunch of crow or, 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 or whatever it involves. We pray that you would apply this to our life Help us to live in light of the Incarnation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll, you'll find that the New Testament writers are frequently making statements about why Jesus came. So if you, if you factor in the statements that Jesus makes about His own Incarnation, I came to seek and to save that which was lost, or a number of other things that He might say, and what the New Testament writers say about the Incarnation, you'll find that the New Testament is filled with explanations as to why he came. And they're not all the same. They probably all filter into essentially the same point, but they're, they, they're, there's a lot of reasons that form the foundational pieces for why Jesus came, his, the reasons for his incarnation. In this passage here that we, we've seen, John gives us at least two reasons why Jesus came. In the first reason, he says, if you'll look at verse 5, he says, you know that He appeared, that is His incarnation, in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. And then if you look at the second half of verse 8, He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, first reason, verse 5, He appeared to take away sins. And then, second reason, verse 8, uh, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, these two reasons are not radically different reasons. They, they are complementary reasons. They're really, uh, if you want to think of it as two sides of the same coin of the reason why Jesus came. But these two statements that John makes in this brief little passage is of our foundational pieces 
that, that, that John puts down for the rest of the passage to actually make sense. So those two pieces of the incarnation are foundational pieces for the rest of the passage to make sense. What John is basically going to say, the, the logical chain of events, is Jesus came and did this. Therefore, you need to do this. So that's, that's the chain. That's the connection. So the incarnation of Jesus is the foundation that makes the rest of the passage make sense. So then we have to understand what he's saying. Because as you've seen, this passage is a gut punch, right? It's a, it, especially on first read, it is, whew, it, is, it is tough. So he says here, the, the appearance of Jesus, he says, was to take away sins. Well, I was always told that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? Haven't you been told that? Did your mama tell you that? Don't you tell your kids that? You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once something has been done, it can't be undone. So how is it then that Jesus could come and take away sins? How is it possible for him to take away something that actually happened? Well, the rest of the Bible will tell us what it means that he came to take away sins. John does too, but... The rest of the Bible is very informative here. Like, think of 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, it's the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Quotes Isaiah 53 there. Well, what about Hebrews 9.28? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So he, he, the first time He came, He says, he, he was offered once to bear the sins of many. Look at Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I will divide Him a portion with the many, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Listen to this. Yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So John is, is saying, like, like the rest of the passages in the Bible, that Jesus came to bear the penalty of sin on the cross. This is why he follows it up with, and in him there is no sin. In other words, Jesus had to be that sinless sacrifice on our behalf. He had to go to the cross as a sinless person so that his death was not justified. Why? Because he was dying for people that deserved to die. Not dying because he deserved to die himself. He was dying for the sins of his people. He was dying an undeserving death. And he suffered for us. Why? To satisfy the wrath of God. So he came in that sense to take away sins for us. But second, John says in verse 8 that he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So the first reason he came is to die to take away sin. The second reason is to destroy the works of the devil. And it's similar to verse 5, but it's, it's looking at it maybe just from a different angle, from the other side of the coin. So unlike Jesus, in whom there is no sin, he says, the devil's been sinning since the beginning. In him there is only sin. He's totally sinful, and all he seeks to do is wickedness. And, shocker of all shockers, all he wants you to do is wickedness. 
All he promotes is wickedness. All he does is wickedness. All he tempts you to do is wickedness. Now, that's not to say, though, that every sin you commit is a result of Satan's work. That's not true. James tells us in James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By the devil? By his own desire. You sin because you want it. You desire it. So the devil made me do it. Doesn't work as an excuse. It wasn't an option for Eve in the garden. It's not an option for either you and I. And even in Genesis, when Eve is tempted by the serpent to take of the fruit and eat, it it also says in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So the woman saw what? Heard the the temptation of the devil? No, that's not what it said. She saw her own desires fulfilled by the eating of the fruit, and so she ate. And we presume that the man saw the same thing, and so he ate. She sinned, not simply just because of Satan's temptation, but because his temptation met with her desires her sinful desires, which lured her away, enticed her, and when sin was conceived, it brought forth death. So it's not to say that all of our sin is a result of Satan's work, but it is to say that all of Satan's work is directed at sinful activity. Everything he does is directed at sinful activity. So we have here in John these two tent posts, these two foundational pieces, Christ's first coming, was to pay the penalty for sin, dying on your behalf, to take away sin's power there. But, what else was it to do? Destroy the sinful activity of the devil. How did he do that? Well, he he took away its power. If the penalty for sin has been paid, if the penalty for your sin has been paid, if you are, because of Christ, no longer under the wrath of God, then what power does Satan's work tempting you to sin actually have if it doesn't bring forth death anymore? So Christ's first coming not only paid for sin, but it also, for the Christian, turns back the clocks, so to speak, taking us back, in a sense, before the world fell into the garden where we have communion with God authentically. His Spirit dwells within us, The price of our sin has been paid. The clocks have essentially been turned back. And we are living in harmony with God again as man did in the garden. Granted, we do have two contrasting natures about us. These two foundational pieces of the incarnation are the logical basis for this passage. So then, what do we have to do? Therefore, how do we live? When we come to the beginning of a new year, we make resolutions on how to live for the next year. And it's as if John is saying to us, you want a resolution? Here are the resolutions you should make, Christian. Here is how you should commit to live. And he really gives two very simple commands. Not simple to follow, simple for him to say. 
Easier said, perhaps, than done. The first is put away sin. How simple is that? There you go. Resolution number one. Put away sin. Look at what he says in verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Look at verse six. No one who abides in him, that is in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one, look at verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, if you're like me, when you read passages like this, there is a strong urge to do what I call blunt the knife. You know what I mean by that? It's, It's... to dull the sharpness of the word. When you read those verses back to back, they can kind of cut you pretty deep and quickly, right? You can just read it, and that would be enough. And so there's a temptation when we read those things, I think, to just blunt the knife. And so you can imagine all the varied interpretations that people come up with when they want to blunt the knife of this passage. I've seen everything from uh, what he's really talking about here is keeps on sinning in unbelief. So as long as you believe in Jesus, you're not the one he's, he's really targeting here, um, which is obviously not the case if you just read it, right? So when you come to a passage like this, you might have one of two reactions. The first is you might panic and go, I'm not a Christian. John is saying, I am a child of the devil right now, Right? The second you might is, might, reaction you might have is you, you might find a way to explain away his words as if he's talking to everyone but you, right? Well, oh, he's keeping, oh, that's talking about that person. I know who he's talking about. I know exactly. I have in my mind who he's talking about. My husband, my, my wife, I know. She really needs to read that. I'm just going to leave it open on the table. Maybe when she sits down, she'll read it. See, the danger of the first in thinking, well, John's saying I'm not a Christian, is that your temptation then is to, rather than understand the passage, and what he is saying is to wallow in shame and self-pity over your sin and fail to trust in Christ's death on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sins, which John is saying is the very reason why he came, right? You're, you're, to deny that foundational peace, Right? That, that first foundation, and he came to take away sin. And, and not trust that, but instead wallow in self-pity and shame. And when you do that, you're actually giving in to the temptations of the devil, which is to rely not on the gospel, just Christ dying for me, but, but rely on my own ability to perform all of these works of righteousness, to provide my own salvation. But then the danger of the second that you explain it away as if he's talking to everyone but you, is that you become a hypocrite and you give in to the power of the devil who is accusing everyone but you. You're fine. Don't don't worry about any of those things. You don't need conviction. Conviction? Did God really say, I don't think so? So there you're giving in to the power that the devil has in using sin and temptation. You're giving into the other foundational piece. And then 
you always walk away from the text never convicted. And listen, that is the definition of a hypocrite. That you come to the text, you read it, you hear it preached, you hear it read and sung, and you walk out of here never getting in the car thinking, man, that really hit me. It doesn't have to be the words that I say in the sermon. It could be the words we read in the scriptures, maybe even the words we sing in the songs. If you never leave those doors ever convicted of the word read or preached, friend, you're probably not a Christian. I know it's hard to hear, but you're probably not. The point is, don't blunt the knife. Let it be sharp. Let the conviction of the passage hit you and then try to understand what John is saying to us. Now, he said several times throughout this epistle, which we haven't read, I get you, don't sin. He's told us several times in this, in this epistle, don't sin. Turn back in, in 1 John to chapter 1. Just look back. It's probably not that far from where you are right now. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Go just a little further into chapter 2 and look at verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, I love it when authors of the Bible do this. They just tell you why they're writing the book. It's so helpful because it gives you the theme of the whole thing right there. I'm writing these things to you so that you wouldn't sin. John's clear urge from the very beginning, his intent in writing to his brothers and sisters, is to tell them, do not sin. All right. But look closely at what he says in verse 4 of our passage. Verse 4, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. So he's zeroing in not on simply people who commit sins. He doesn't want you to commit sins, but he's not zeroing in only on people that just commit sins. That's all of us. That's John himself included. But precisely on those who go on sinning. All right, what does it mean then to go on sinning? I'm glad you asked. That's a really important for my sermon, and if you hadn't asked it, we wouldn't be able to go to the next point. Listen to what he says earlier in the book. Go back, go back to chapter 1, look, look at verse 6. We're going to read it again, and then we're going to read verse 9. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Ah, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not, on, not for our sins, or not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So his message is clear. Don't sin. But, and, and, and the reason for Christmas, the reason Christ came, is so that you wouldn't sin. Now, through Christ and his coming, it is possible for you 
to not sin. It is possible for you to please the Lord, in other words. But if you do sin, don't go on sinning. You understand what he's saying? Take the book together. Take the first chapter along with the third chapter. What is he saying in total? If you do sin, don't go on sinning. If you do sin, trust the righteousness of Christ. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. So He's intent in this passage on showing us how you can distinguish between two people, one that is a child of the devil and one that is a child of the Lord. And the difference is what? Repentance. That's the marker. That is the difference. As opposed to going on sinning. One continues to go on in, in, his, in his awful sinful choices. And the other stops and makes restitution. Confessing his sins to the Lord and turning from them and walking the other, other direction. See, as it turns out, the children of the devil don't appeal to the Lord for forgiveness of sin. You understand? But it would be easy to say, when I say children of the devil, as John points out here, it'd be easy to think about the vilest person you know. Not, doesn't, hadn't darkened the door of a church in their whole life, has no regard for the things of Christ at all, and you're going, child of the devil, right there, I know that that's a child of the devil. I don't think John wants us to think about that person. I think John wants us to think inside the household of faith, not outside. He's wanting us to look inside the church, not outside the church. It's easy for us to understand who are unbelievers and who are believers if we were to just look at church attendance. Someone not darkening the door of a church, not having any regard for Christ whatsoever, we would say, yeah, Unbeliever, you don't need John to write you a letter for that. That's not what he's doing. He's writing a letter to a church to distinguish between false teachers and good teachers, false Christians and good Christians, the ones that put up a false front of the hypocrite, pretending as though they're Christians and maybe fooling a whole host of other people, while the other group actually following Christ. And revering the Lord. And what does he say? What is the difference? One repents and the other does not. His concern is with the church evaluating the salvation of its members. And the reason he says that a child of God cannot go on sinning, look at verse 9. He says, because God's seed abides in him. Meaning that the life of the child of God will steadily, because God dwells in him, the, ch- the life of the child of God will steadily bend towards repentance. Now, sometimes it's a slow curve. And sometimes it's a sharp pivot. But the lifestyle of the child of God will bend towards repentance. This is the reason that Jesus in the book of Matthew tells you if someone sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. What, if he doesn't listen, what do you do? Cut him off? No. 
He says, bring two or three others to tell him his sin. If he still doesn't listen to you, in other words, he doesn't turn from his sin, bring the whole church. If he doesn't listen, turn from his sin, repent. When even the church tells him that, remove him from membership. Confirm there is no evidence that you are a child of God. Why? Because repentance marks the believer. Sinning, he says, is practicing lawlessness. And to go on sinning is to be a lawless one. To just continue in that sin without repentance is to continue to be a lawless one. In which case, who in this passage is the lawless one? Is it Christ in whom there is no sin? Or is it the devil who has been sinning since the beginning? Well, the lawless one is the devil. So if you go on participating in lawlessness, who are you evidencing that you're a child of? The devil. You can understand John's reasoning. So if we're to respond to the incarnation of Jesus with our own New Year's resolution of sorts, first it would be this. Don't go on sinning. Instead, repent. But second, is practicing righteousness. Look at what he says in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. As I said, John's purpose throughout this passage seems to be giving the church body a filter for what is a Christian and what is not a Christian so that we can examine ourselves first. We can look in the mirror and we can say, based on John's definition there, am I a Christian or am I not? And then that we might be able to examine all of those in the body who claim to follow Christ. This has been the theme since the beginning of the book. Look what John says in chapter 1, verse 7. So flip back again to chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We're walking in the light. And look at then chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, now mind you, John does not say that the, the child of God merely practices good deeds. That is often how we come to evaluate who is a Christian and who is not. Wow, I mean, he, he's so nice. He gives to the poor. He does all the things that I would expect a Christian to do. Listen, there are plenty of people in the world. Some of them might even show up to church on Sunday morning and demonstrate some level of kindness to other people, but be as far away from the Lord as the average Christian. And that is John's point. 
If there are people in amongst average congregations who are not believers and yet masquerade as though they are, again, it's a matter first of repentance of sin. Where do they go with their sin? And second, then living as Jesus lived, actually demonstrating the character of Christ to other people. Repentance of sin, living as Jesus lived. Pay close attention to verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Think for just a minute about what salvation really is. I I think it's apt that we sing, and can it be? And particularly verse 3, where Charles Wesley says, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. I was imprisoned in my own sin and nature's light. But your eye, thine eye, diffused a quickening ray. I woke in the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed. It's a good description of how salvation actually comes to a person from Charles Wesley. Think about what it actually is. God first makes alive a dead heart. Period. First, God comes to a person and revives their dead heart. What was dead is now alive. Ephesians 2 comes to mind. Many other passages in Scripture. God makes the first move and He regenerates the soul of an otherwise unbelieving person. So a person who is on a path to hell... God reaches into their heart, helps them to understand the gospel at its preaching. Their eyes open up, they see their own sin, and then what happens next? Well, if the Spirit of God then dwells in them, that's how that dead heart comes alive. God puts His own Spirit within them. If that happens, then what is the first thing that the Spirit of God is going to do in the life of that unbeliever? He says, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. They profess faith in Christ, and they repent of their sins. Remember Peter's preaching in Acts? He preaches, and it says, the men were cut to the heart. In other words, the chains fell off. Their eyes were open. They saw the dungeon inflamed with light. And they said, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. the natural outcome of what happens when the Spirit of God changes the nature of a person. Which is why it's impossible for someone who has the new nature, has the Spirit of God dwelling in them, to refuse to repent. If indeed you have two natures within you, one is desiring repentance and pushing you in that direction, it is impossible for you to very long resist it because it will slowly, over the course of your life, begin weeding out the work of the flesh over time. It will begin growing in you and it will be impossible for you to refuse repentance for any period of time. But then second, once that new nature moves in, what does the Spirit of God desire to do in the world? Desires to act like Christ acted. Just look to Jesus. 
Just watch what he does in the text of Scripture. Everybody likes indignant Jesus, righteous Jesus, who comes in and turns over the tables. That's not the bulk of his ministry, though. The bulk of his ministry is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So the Spirit of God moves in, convicts us of sin, moves us to repentance, urges us toward practicing of righteousness. So the purpose of Christ's coming, His dying, His rising again, is to pay the penalty of sin, so that the punishment from God that you rightly deserve would be taken by Him on the cross. And then because He has made atonement for His people, we take part in His nature. Now we have two competing natures. We're always, as long as we are this side of death, we're always going to have that other sinful competing nature. We're always going to, from time to time, choose sin. But now the new nature in us is doing war with that nature and urging us towards repentance. And so his people take part in his nature just like we take part in the nature of Adam by being born as humans. Now we take part in the nature of Christ. So then you have to ask yourself, is my life looking more like Christ's every year? On this side of death, we're never going to be perfect. But, if you were to grade, grade yourself on a long, slow curve, if you were going to blunt the knife for just a second, would you say that you are more like Christ today than when it all started? And I'll give you as long as you want to go back. All right? Teenage you kid, you, however long you want to go back, would you say you are more like Christ today than you were back then? Now, I know many of you in this church who are older, and I would say, I didn't know you when you were a kid, but the character of Christ oozes off of you. It is plainly evident to everyone that is around you, that you have the character of Christ. Your joy, your peace, your encouragement. And I can promise you that there are a slew of young people in this church who look up to you and who want to be like you. My question to all of us is, is that what people would say of us? The character of Christ oozes from your pores. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Does that ooze from your life? What if you were to allow the knife to just be sharp for a minute? And you were to ask, well, what if you looked at a smaller sample of your life? The last four years. The last two years, the last six months, do I look more like Christ today than six months ago? What about yesterday? 
Are you leaning more into repentance? Are you finding ways to love and serve people around you more today than yesterday? John includes this line at the end because the question might be, well, I don't, how do I know? How do, how do I know? I don't, I, I'm not sure. He includes this line at the end, which sometimes, I wish he didn't, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Which then launches him into a whole section on how we know we love one another and what it's like to be a child of God is to love your brother. But for John and for Jesus and actually for the rest of the Bible, your new Christ-like nature should be felt first and foremost by your brothers and sisters in the church body. Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So then let me ask you, as it pertains to people within the church body, we all walk around from time to time holding grudges. We all walk around from time to time with animosity for particular people within the church. They might be people within the pew. They might be the pastor. They might be a host of other people. Let me ask you what your grudge is actually doing. Just think about logically what you're holding on to in your anger, your animosity, your bitterness. Just think about what it's doing for just a second. First of all, let's pretend for just a second that that person you have a grudge against or you have anger and animosity towards, let's, let's just pretend that they are a Christian. They're going to be with you in heaven for eternity. Let's just imagine that for just a second. What you're saying about that person is God forgave them of all their sins. That's what it means to be in heaven for eternity. God forgave them of all their sins. Why is it that you feel the need to hold them accountable for every single one of them? What do grudges do? That's all it does. It's heaping up sin on your behalf and not on, you're not saying anything about them. You're saying a host about you. Okay, let's say, worst case scenario, that person in your church, maybe that family member, a friend, or whatever, is not a believer. They're not a Christian. They're going to spend eternity in hell. Let's pretend you know that for a second. Then understand what you're saying by holding on to this grudge. God has determined that hell is a fit punishment. And eternity in hell is a fit punishment for all their sin and unbelief. But you say, well, hell plus all my anger and bitterness and rage against them. What, what is your system of justice higher than God's system of justice? Under no circumstances does the holding of a grudge, bitterness and hostility, especially towards a brother or sister, ever fit for the life of a Christian. All that's happening is that you're going on sinning. Do you understand that? What it might testify to, that you're actually not the believer. Your bitterness, your rage, your anger, that you carry with you from day to day is heaping up evidence that the Spirit of God does not dwell in you at all. 
So then you have to ask, what do I do when I'm confronted with sin? When a brother or sister, maybe an unbeliever, maybe my wife or husband, confronts me with sin, what do I do? What's my reaction? Is it to defend myself and to back up and to justify all the reasons and to go on justifying all the reasons when I'm caught in sin? Now, we're all going to do that from one to one degree or another. I'm as guilty of it as anybody else is. But what follows after that? If the curve is a little bit longer, what follows after that? Is it confession and repentance? Or is it bitterness and hostility? That's the question. See, what John is laying out here is a litmus test for us. Here's the resolution. Don't sin. But if you do, trust Christ, repent of your sin, and turn from it. If that means eating some crow, then eat some crow. Turn from it. Repent. Thereby destroying the work of the devil and his stronghold that he has on your life. Because you're trusting in Christ. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Trust in that. Lean on that. Repent of sin. And instead, see the Spirit of God flourish in you. And how will you know it flourishes? What will then be oozing out of your pores is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the hearts of those this congregation, myself included, that over the week, maybe today, maybe now, you would reveal to us where potentially we are holding on to bitterness, anger, hostility, greed, where we're doing all the things opposite of the fruit that the Spirit produces. Reveal those things to us. Allow us to make amends with anyone we've hurt. Allow us the boldness to confess sin that we have failed to confess. To own it, not just before you, but also before them. So that we can truly know what it means to say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Pray that you would give us that gift this year. In Jesus' name, amen.